Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adapt us into his own family. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he wanted to do. We are adopted. Somos adoptados. We are rescued. Somos escogidos. We are chosen. We are chosen. We are chosen. We are chosen. You know, about 10 years ago, my wife and I, we lived in the Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. It was my first pastoral job. I was a youth pastor. And uh, one Sunday morning, it was, it was a normal uh, day, and one of our elders came up to me in, in church, and he just said, Hey, Drew, I'm a Washington, D.C., Washington Redskins season ticket holder, and I have an opportunity for you. And most of you know this by now, um, but for those of you who don't know this, I am a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And all God's people said? Uh, you know, first service, I got booze on that. I've never got booze for that. You know, I've just chosen to cheer for God's team. I mean, America's team. And so it was a Sunday morning, and he said, hey, I can't go to this game. The Redskins are playing the Cowboys, and I want to give these tickets to you free. Do you want them? And it was one of those questions where you're like, you just don't even have to think about it. You're like, yes, whatever it takes, yes. And they were absolutely free. And not only were they free, they were amazing seats. They were like heated seats with an all-you-can-eat buffet. I was like, this is like, this is a gift from God, right? And so, you know, you, you say that word free. And nothing really in life is, is ultimately free. Even this game, the seats were free. But I ended up having to, you know, spend some money, whether it was paying for a parking pass or buying some gear at the game or, or getting some extra food or snacks that we wanted. You know, my wife and I went. We probably spent anywhere from $100 to $200 that night. And you might say, wow, that seems pretty steep for a football game. But the truth is, according to me, maybe not my wife, it was worth every single penny. You want to know why? Because I value watching my team play. And when you think about that word value, you see, value is really demonstrated by what you're willing to pay for something or someone. That's how we determine, that's how we demonstrate our value, is, is value is really demonstrated by what you're willing to pay for something. And, and all throughout our life, we, we value a lot of things. We do. And if you ever want to know what you value, just, just really look at what you're spending your money on. You see, some of us, we, we value a nice home. And so through the course of our life, we, we spend our money in investing in our home, upgrading, renovating. Some of us, we value driving a nice car, and so we save up money and to buy that car that we love. Some of us value good food. We're foodies. And so we spend our money on nice restaurants. Some of us value uh, our bodies, and so we go to masseuses. We get our nails and our hairs done. Some, a lot of us, we value our kids, and so we spend a lot of our money on, on our kids' sports programs or extracurricular activities. And see, value is really demonstrated by what you're willing to pay. That's, that's how we determine value. 
And you see, we've been in this series, just this is the second week of the series called Chosen. And in this series, what we're doing is we're breaking down the theology of the gospel by looking at a lens, an illustration that the New Testament gives us called adoption. And, and so we're breaking down this, this, this gospel story. And last week, we started at the very beginning of the Bible where Adam rejected God, he disobeyed God, he sinned, and that had ripple effects on all of us, even to this day. Two ripple effects. One is sinful nature. We're all born with it. We're all born sinners, and, and we're all prone. Our natural tendency is to sin. The second implication was a broken relationship with God. There was nothing hindering Adam and Eve with God, and now we're born separated from God because of our sin, and that placed us in this hopeless situation. Hopeless because we couldn't fix it. There was no morality, no good life we could live, no standard that we could meet to fix the problem then sin, that sin brought. And so here we were, hopeless, sinful, but yet God still saw value in us. How amazing is that? And when you value something, cost shouldn't, doesn't matter. But oftentimes, it does. Check this out. journey begins about four years into marriage. Ashley and I kind of got together and we started talking about extending our family, um, maybe having some kids. And, you know, I was naive enough to think that that would just be an easy process, you know, smooth sailing. In a year, we'd have a kid and, man, we'd be growing our family. And that just wasn't our story. We weren't really having any results. We started seeing some physicians. Drew went to the doctor, I went to the doctor. After a year, we were told that we should probably see fertility if we wanted to keep trying. As a woman, I feel like I had already started to pray and contemplate what was coming next for us. I remember a year into it and there was nothing, not even a hope, not even a scare. Um, I was like, what, what's going on? And I remember Ashley and I just talking like, hey, this is normal, um, you know, it, it takes some time. And so I didn't get too discouraged. I was like, oh, this will happen when, when God wa wants it to. And, and so we just continued to try. And then two years, three years, it, it started to get a little bit concerning. Um, I remember going to doctors and getting tests done and thinking like, okay, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with Ashley? You know, are we, are we gonna be able to have a child? Um, 
is this in the books for us? I remember just praying, like, God, I mean, why, why wouldn't you give us a child? Um, you know, we've tried to be faithful to you, we've tried to follow you, and, and this is a desire of our heart, and what's wrong? Like, what's going on? The question that just kept coming to my mind was, do I want to be a parent or do I want to be pregnant? I am a nurse by trade, and I knew that the fertility journey wasn't something that I, as a woman, really wanted to go down and it had taken me back to that tension to parent or to be pregnant. So for me, a big thing was just laying down the desire to be pregnant. At the end of the day, I just wanted to be a mom. You know, about three, three and a half years into it, I remember Ashley coming up to me and saying, hey, Drew, what do you think about adoption? And to be honest, it, it caught me off guard. Um, I really wasn't ready for it. I'm sure she caught uh, wind of my expressions and I'm sure she was shocked by my response where I was just like, I don't, I don't know, babe. I've always wanted to have my own kids and I knew it was like the Christian thing to do. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about orphans and how we're supposed to love the orphans, uh, but I just wasn't there yet. I remember, you know, taking some time and doing some research and I remember looking up um, some agencies and, and just, Digging into what adoption was, and, and my big hang-up, honestly, if I'm if I'm being real, is man, I remember one day going online, um, and I went onto this agency, and there was this big tab on the website, and that tab said cost, and I remember clicking on that tab and scrolling through the bottom of this piece of paper, and then there was this number there, and that number was what it would cost to adopt a kid, and that number took my breath away. Um, that number scared me. And I was like, no way. There's no way. Like, one, we can't do that. Like, there's no way right now we can even come close to pulling that off. From that moment on, my heart was just hardened towards even the idea of adoption. I didn't want to talk about it. It was just a no. So here we were, sinners, in a hopeless situation that we couldn't fix lost, without hope. And then maybe the most two powerful words in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 5, it says this, but God. I mean, just for a moment, like that, 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 th those two words are just, they're rich and they're powerful. While I was hopeless, without hope, but God. And this is the full verse. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, hopeless, rejecting God, Christ died for us. And right here we see the value that God demonstrated for us by while we were sinners, he chose to die for us. And if value is really demonstrated by what you're willing to pay for it, we, we see how much God really does value us. And, and I think we have to understand the price tag that came with our sin. You see, the reason why we couldn't pay is because we didn't have the ability to, to fulfill all that sin brought into our lives. And we have to understand that our sin, our rejection of God came with a steep cost but yet God valued us enough to pay it. And this morning, I want to walk you through four costs that Jesus paid to overcome our sin. 
The first one is this. It, was, it cost him his position. His position. Jesus had to give up his position. This was a positional cost. And John chapter 6 really speaks into this. It says this. It says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And here we see Jesus surrendering his position when it comes to location. You see, Jesus stepped out of the glory and the perfection of heaven. He gave it up, like the, the, the absolutely sitting at the right hand of the Father, the perfect best place in, in the world to be at heaven. Jesus surrendered it, and he gave up his position to come to a messy and broken world. He was willing to give up his position, not only just that location-wise, but who he was. Philippians chapter 2, it says this. It says, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So it's one thing for Jesus to leave heaven and to come on a, a royal like, throne and say, hey, everybody, I'm here. I'm God Almighty. You worship me because I'm amazing. That's not how Jesus came. Jesus came by lowering himself, by humbling himself, making himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And I think sometimes we forget that this is Jesus. This is the God of the universe. This is the King of kings. And think about how Jesus came for a second. You know, we're going to celebrate it in two months at Christmas. You see, we don't celebrate the presents we get. We celebrate the gift that God gave that's what Christmas is all about. And Jesus came. He didn't come as an adult. He came as a baby. And think about all the things babies go through. I mean, I've got three babies at home, and guess what they need? Their diapers changed. And I know that's kind of like a, a, we giggle. That, that's true. But do you realize how, how, how maybe awkward it must have been for the God of the universe to have someone change his diaper? We don't think of it like that, but how humbling is that? I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. He gave up his position at the right hand of God, and he came to a messy, broken world, and he came as a humble little baby. The second thing Jesus gave up was his dignity. His dignity. This was the emotional cost that Jesus had to pay. And Jesus came to this earth, you know, knowing what his purpose was. His purpose was to die, to pay for our sins. He knew he was going to the cross. He lived a great life, a perfect life. He did ministry, but his whole purpose was to go to the cross, to die. That was the reason why he came. And here at the cross, we see Jesus being stripped of his dignity. Matthew 27, it says this, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt down in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And here you see Jesus losing his dignity. They strip him. And so he's basically naked. I mean, that's, that's, that's enough to lose your dignity, but then they mock him. They put a staff in his hand. They, they bow down and, and mock him by kneeling and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He's such a powerful king that he can't even save himself from mankind. And then they spit in his face. And, and you think about spitting in someone's face. Like, if you want to ever strip somebody of their dignity, spit in their face. Because culturally, it doesn't matter what culture you're from or where you live, that is something that is, isn't accepted anywhere in our world. To spit in somebody's face, and that's what they're doing to Jesus. They're removing his dignity. 
We also see it in how he, was, how he died. Matthew 27, it says, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And so Jesus died a death that removed his dignity. He was crucified. And you have to understand something about the Roman Empire. You see, the, the reason why the Romans crucified people is because they were criminals. And they wanted to make a public example of them. And so all the criminals were were put in a public display. They were crucified because the Roman Empire wanted to let everybody know, these are the criminals, and if you mess with us, this is what will happen to you. And that's the death Jesus died. He died as a criminal. Remember, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. In fact, even one of the head Roman officials, Pilate, said, I can't find any fault in Jesus, but yet here he is being stripped of his dignity, dying as a criminal between two criminals. So he gave up his dignity for you. The third thing he gave up was his body. This is the physical cost Jesus paid for our sin. John 19 verse 1, it says this, it says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And man, we can read through this in our Bible and not understand what that encompassed. Because the Romans were professionals at inflicting pain on people. And a flogging done by a Roman soldier consists of a tool called a flagrum. And a flagrum was this handle that had leather straps on the end of it. And tied to these leather straps were two things. One, they were like small boulder-like stones. And these stones were made to create momentum. And when they hit your body, they would create contusions. They would break down slowly, whip after whip, your body, bruising it, breaking it. And the second thing on the end of this, this leather strap was bones, shards of bones. And, and this, the whole purpose of these shards of bones were to rip back your flesh so the stones could crush your body even more. And the Hebrew law said 40 lashes was the minimum. 40 lashes was the limit. You couldn't go any more than 40, but the Roman Empire, they had no limit. They were so good at this that they broke it down to a scientific formula and they knew exactly how many lashes they could give to keep somebody alive but inflict the the most amount of pain. And that's what Jesus walked through for you. His body is being broken. Matthew 27 says the soldiers nailed Jesus to a cross. So here his hands are being nailed to a wooden cross, his feet together are being nailed to the cross, and they would set the cross in this hole, and you would stand on this mountain peak on this public display. And, and, And a crucifixion is an agonizing death because it's this battle for survival. You see, most people, when they were crucified, they didn't die from bloodshed. They died by losing breath. They suffocated. Because when you're crucified, you have to lift your body up enough to allow your lungs to take in air. And so every time you breathe, you would have to lift your hands and your feet that are nailed stationary to gain breath. Second after second, hour after hour, it was this agonizing battle to breathe. And to top it all off, Matthew 27, it says, And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put... On his head. And so they took a crown of thorns, most scholars believe, from an acacia tree, which was common in the area, a tree that had these deep, sharp uh, thorns on it. They would weave it together and they would gouge it into the top of your head. And here Jesus is enduring all of this to pay for our sins. 
And man, you look at those three things, his position, leaving heaven, his dignity, being mocked and spit upon, and then just being tortured. You would say, well, that's enough, right? Like, that's enough for anybody. But what's interesting is if you take those three things and you combine them together, they didn't come close to equaling the last thing. They weren't even, they paled in comparison to the last thing that Jesus had to, the last thing that it cost him. And it was this, his father's acceptance. This was the relational cost that Jesus had to walk through. And Corinthians gives us why Jesus had to lose his father's acceptance. It says this, it says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you see, at the, at the cross, there's this transaction happening where Jesus, who was innocent, is taking on the weight of the guilty. That's us, our sins. It says, he was made, he who had no sin, was made to become sin for us. And then there's this transaction happening where God, the Father, is laying the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, past, present, and future, all on the shoulders of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus cries out to his father. We see it in Matthew 27. It says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right here's the moment where God, the father in his holiness, can no longer look upon his son, can no longer accept his son because he's becoming sin, the very thing that God cannot tolerate on our behalf. And he walks through his father's rejection. And we have to understand, man, Jesus left heaven to go through hell for us. Jesus left the glory and the perfection of heaven, came as a baby with one purpose, and that was to lose his position, that was to lose his dignity, for his body to be broken, and for him to lose his father's acceptance. Why? Because we were hopeless, and the only way we could have hope again is was if Jesus was willing to pay the cost. And it's a sobering reminder for every single one of us, but it also has implications for every single one of us. And the first implication is this, is Jesus' sacrifice places a value on your life that no one can take away. You see, if value is truly demonstrated by what you're willing to pay, the fact that Jesus went through all of those costs just simply to tell you you're valuable. Isn't really that what we want in life? I mean, most of us, we, we spend the majority of our lives trying to obtain value, trying to, uh, to obtain love, worth. And so we, what we do is we, we look for it in, in all kinds of places. And the thing that we're looking for in temporary worldly things, the reality is, is God has already given to you. You're valuable, and it's not based on what you do. The job you have, the home you live in, the car you drive, what you look like, the color of your skin. The fact of the matter is, is God values and no one, based on what they say, can take that away from you. This is what Timothy Keller says. He says this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. 
I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. And here's where I think we get this all wrong in, 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 in our lives today. is for most of us, we are searching for value. Whether we want to admit it to it or not, most of us, we have this idea of like, hey, if I just get to that position in, in, in my company, or if I just could live in that dream home that I've always wanted, or if I could just be in that relationship, or if I could just get married, then I would be worth something, then I would be valuable. And we would never walk around saying, oh, I'm searching for value, but honestly, we are. And we're searching for it in, in, in things that are temporary, and here's where the problem is. What happens when you lose those things? What happens when you foreclose on your house? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend? What happens when you go through a messy divorce? You know what for a lot of us it does? It shakes our value and it shakes our worth. It's, it's true of our culture because we see it almost every day. Where, where people are giving up on their life, they're committing suicide, because honestly, for one reason, they don't feel like they're worth anything to anybody. And it's because they've placed their value, because often we place our value in things that are fleeting, that are temporary. But what if we changed that? What if we started to get our value from God and what he did for us that he gives freely to us? You see, what would change for us is when we lose our job, when we break up with our, our, our boyfriend or girlfriend, we, when we foreclose on our house or we lose the car we love or, or we walk through a messy divorce, it doesn't shake our value because our value was never in those things. It was solely in what God has done for us. And that changes the way we look at life. It changes when our circumstances go haywire. It doesn't strip us of our value because it was never in those things. And that's a big transformation for some of us in life because we have searched for value in people. We've searched for value in things. Some of us are searching for value in a drink or a drug because it's the only place we can find it. And I'm telling you, you're searching for something that God has already given you. And, and he, no one can take it away. When you find your value in God, it doesn't matter what someone gossips about you or what happens to you in life. It doesn't strip you of your value because God always, it will always be there for you. So you have to worry about what people say about you or the things that happen in your life because that value will always be there based on what Jesus did for you. The second thing I think we have to understand about the gospel, according to Jesus, the cost Jesus paid for us, is when we, when we think about this idea of salvation. Now, salvation is simply a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. And we have to understand something about salvation. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. And, and this speaks to this dichotomy, this tension that there is with the theology of the gospel. Because the gospel says that it's through faith alone. It doesn't cost you anything. Salvation doesn't cost you anything, but it won't be cheap to you, and it wasn't cheap to God. In fact, it's this balance of faith with works, and I think Ephesians speaks directly to this tension. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. 
And so here it says, it says, hey, a relationship with Jesus Christ will cost you nothing. It's a free gift. It only happens through faith. You can't work your way to heaven. It's only by the blood, the grace of Jesus Christ. But that salvation will cost you something. See how it gets weird? See the tension there? It's free, but it costs. It's kind of like my tickets. And James speaks directly to this. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so here's this, there's this tension here between faith and works. Like, can I have faith without works? And can I, re- can I truly have faith without works? And here's what they're saying, ultimately, is faith that costs you nothing is no faith at all. And here's what I'm afraid that many of us believe, is we believe in the gospel that saves us, but we don't believe in the gospel that costs us. Let me say that again. I think a lot of people in life today, they believe in the gospel that saves me from my sin and from hell, but I don't believe in the gospel that will change my life enough to to, to alter what it cost me. And Jesus speaks directly to this. This isn't, this isn't like a 2000 uh, culture thing. This is like a, has been true about the culture through the fabric of scripture. And Jesus in his culture speaks directly to this tension. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 16 to his disciples. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciples, that's a Christian, that's a follower of Christ. Look at the next word. It says, must. It's not optional. Deny yourself. Take up your cross follow me. So here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, there's a cost associated with following me. You've got to deny yourself. Problem there. I love myself. We love ourselves. Like, we love ourselves more than anybody else in life. I know you tell your wife or your husband something different, but it ain't true. <laughs> Honey, I love you so much, but I love me way more. And that's the truth, to deny myself, my desires, my wants, my needs. Ooh, Jesus, (laughs) wow. But what I love what Jesus does in Luke chapter 14, because I think this speaks to the, the greater struggle. It says this, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Strong words there. It says there was a large crowd gathering and following Jesus. And so we don't know how big this crowd was. Could have been 500 people. Could have been 1,000 people. Could have been tens of thousands of people. And do you want to know why this crowd was following Jesus? Because they wanted the benefits of him. Up to this point, Jesus had done miracle after miracle. He's healed people. He's turned water into wine. And so this crowd is following Jesus because they're like, wow, what can Jesus do for me? Hey, I I need healing, Jesus. I'm going to go follow Jesus. Oh, I need God to change my circumstances. I'm going to go follow Jesus. And man, I think for some of us, that should be convicting because guess what? That's the only reason why we follow Jesus. Is because we want the benefits of hell. Because the reality of hell scares me enough to believe in Jesus. And all I want Jesus for is I want Jesus to make my life better now. 
And that's why we follow Jesus. And that is exactly why this crowd was following Jesus. They wanted his benefits. They wanted him to make their life better. And I love what Jesus does. He knows this. Being God, he knew that. And so he splits the crowd. And he splits the crowd into two categories. The people who just want him for his benefits and the people who are actually there to truly follow Jesus. And you want to know how he splits the crowd? He just shows them what it looks like to follow him. He says, you want to know, you want to know something, everybody? You want to follow me? you got to hate your mom and your dad, your children, even yourself. And dang, those are harsh words. Some of you who are new, new to Christianity, you're like, man, i got to call my mom and tell her I hate her today. <laughs> Don't do that, okay? But here's what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus is saying, your love for me should be so strong that in any other relationship you have, it should look like hate. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you should love me so passionately, and it should be so evident that you love me that it looks like you're neglecting every other relationship in your life. You see, he's not talking about an emotional type of love. He's talking about a love that sets priorities. And the reality is, in all of our lives, we should love Jesus where he's first, and it's not even close, where Jesus is so above every other relationship and every other thing in our life that everybody looks at us like, wow, you really love Jesus, don't you? But I wonder if that's true for our lives. And really what Jesus was getting at is this. The evidence of salvation, a relationship with him, is the willingness to count the cost. It's the willingness to count the cost. Because a relationship with Jesus will cost you. And that's what Jesus was doing with the crowd. He's saying, hey, listen, it's going to cost you to follow me. And for those of you who just want the benefits of me, problem. That won't work. I mean, that leads me to a question. And this, this question is, is gut-checking. It's been gut-checking in my life, and I think it will be gut-checking in your life. Is has Jesus cost you anything? And let's just let that sit there for a moment. Has following Jesus cost you anything? Because if it hasn't, honestly, you might want to question if you're really following Jesus. Because at the end of the day, salvation is a free gift of grace. But over the course of your life, it will cost you greatly. And that's not a message that fills stadiums full of churches. You know what this message does? It shrinks churches. Because it's really easy to fill up a, a stadium full of people and just say, hey, accept God. He'll make your life fantastic. And he'll make you rich and happy. And it will be great. And people will come for miles to hear that message. But people will leave the church knowing, wow, if I follow Jesus, it's going to cost me relationally. I'm going to lose some friends in the journey. It's going to cost me when it comes to my work and my job because there's going to be a time where your, your boss asks you to do something that goes against God's word. <laughs> and you're going to have to choose the cost. Do I truly want to follow Jesus or am I okay cutting corners in this area of my life? And one area we don't like to talk about in the church is God will cost you financially. Whew. It just blows our mind. Like, I, I don't, whoa. Whoa, did you just say finance is true? And the reality is, for a lot of us in life, is are we willing to count the cost? And I know there's tension with finances because guess what? It's right here. Because here my wife was leading me 
to adoption, something that God was calling our family to. And do you want to know what got in the way? You don't want to know who the stumbling block in our family's life was? The pastor. You know, the guy that you think is perfect? Bad news. And I put cost, what it would cost my pocketbook in front of what God was calling our family to. Check this out. When Drew and I were kind of at odds about was this something we were going to even proceed with, I remember I went on a run one day and it was kind of a cloudy overcast day and I was pretty emotional, tearful. We had been trying at that point for several years and still had this tension in front of us about what we were going to do as far as what path we were going to take to expand our family. And I remember I was just praying and the sun came out from behind the cloud. And I felt at that point such a peace that God had our story covered. And even though Drew was disagreeing with what I wanted to possibly proceed with or didn't really see eye to eye on that yet, I felt like God was telling me that he had control of what was going on with Drew. He had our future in his control and all I needed to do was be faithful and to pray for what I believed in my heart was our next step. I never felt like I needed to argue with Drew or show him a lot of statistics. I may or may not have stacked all the adoption books on his nightstand, and I don't know if he read those, but no matter what, we were gonna have a family because God had it totally under control and I didn't need to control our marriage. And so I remember her saying, you know, would you just go with me to this event? Um, it's, a, it's through Lifeline Children's Agency. It's, it's kind of an adoption fundraiser. Um, let's just go and see what God does. And so I remember going to this event thinking like, okay, this is the final straw where I'm like, babe, listen, obviously this is not for us because I'm gonna go into this event. I've got a hard heart. I'm, no thank you. Like adoption is not for us. We just, let's persevere. Let's, let's, have, let's have our own kids. And so we get to this event and we have dinner and man, we start hearing testimonies of people who have been adopted and kids who have been adopted. They have this whole choir of kids singing and, and it was moving. Um, it moved my heart and I had this moment with God and um, God didn't speak audibly to me, um, but it was just this moment where God whispered in my heart, Drew, do you realize how much I paid to adopt you? Do you realize how much it cost for me to pay for your life and your sin? And it was just this wake-up call for me where I recognized, man, how much my Savior paid to allow me to be part of His family. And in that moment, it was, it was just a flip of a switch for me. It was a, wow, I'm sorry, God. And wow, Ashley, I'm sorry that I've been this stumbling block, that I've been this really arrogant, prideful man who put cost in, in front of what God was really leading our family to. At the end of the fundraiser, they told us that if anybody was interested in adopting, you could always start with an application. There was a stack of application forms right in the middle of the table. And I looked at Drew and there was tears in his eyes and he was reaching for an application. And at that point, it was, it doesn't matter what this cost is as far as financially. I, this is a good place to start. And I remember grabbing those applications and being like, oh, this is a start of 
of a journey that I have no clue what it means or what it looks like, how much it's gonna cost us beyond money, just emotions and, and, and journey, but let's go. And so we did, we jumped into it, not knowing what the future had in store for us. You know, when you, when you really do value something, if you truly do value something, cost never matters. It doesn't. It will not. If you value it, the cost is just something that you have to get through. And I'm afraid for some Christians, that's just not true. We love God. We claim we love God, but we love Him to a limit. We love him to this, this spot. And, and, and anything past this limit, I'm not sure if I love God anymore. I mean, I'm just grateful and thankful that that's not how God viewed me and you. That where my value wasn't really high because of my sin and your value wasn't very high because of your sin, Jesus still valued you. And he valued you by demonstrating it by giving up his position. <laughs> he left heaven. And I don't, I, don't, I don't even think we can begin to understand and unfathom heaven, just giving that up. But he left heaven. He humbled himself, not to be worshiped, <laughs> but to, to go to a cross where his dignity was removed and his body was tortured for us. And ultimately to where his father rejected him. And he did it all for you and me and our sins. And when you look at the gospel, these, these first two weeks of the series on the gospel, man, I, I think it can be summed up in just one simple phrase, one simple sentence. It's while I and you were sinners, hopeless in our sin, rejecting God. God valued us and loved us enough to pay the ultimate price for our sin. And that is a sobering reminder that hopefully leads us to a place where cost doesn't matter anymore. Let's pray. God, it's amazing if we step back and think about how much you gave up for us. Sinners, unworthy people, yet you gave it all for us. And God, may that lead us to live the same way. That our love would have no limits in following you. In fact, our love would be so passionate that every other relationship that we have would pale in comparison to the way we love you. So we pray that you'd help us and you lead us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, you know, as we, as we kind of reflect on all Jesus gave for us. You'll notice right now, volunteers are passing out 
a little cracker and some grape juice. Amen. when we think about the cost that Jesus went through, I think there's no better way to remember that than through communion. And communion is just simply a way that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it's for believers. It's for that person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who's made them the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their lives. And man, if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, I'm telling you, man, it, today could be your day. Maybe you talk to someone who brought you, you meet me out in the lobby. If you got questions, man, we would love to have you. We'll have a pastor down front. But this morning, we want to just reflect and to remember, and we want to evaluate. Maybe you, this morning, as you sit during the song and you evaluate, man, has Jesus cost me anything? And what, what limits do I have on my love for God? It's just a chance for us to reflect and look inside in our own personal walk with Jesus Christ. And so Emmy is going to come and, and sing a song. And, and as she sings this song, man, I'd encourage you to forget about who's singing it, to forget about how she sounds, but to really embrace the words of this song, to take them in, to chew on them, and to, to recognize what Jesus gave up for you.